We'll be finishing up First Timothy tonight. Not sure where we're going to go next week. Haven't decided yet. I like going back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament. So I've been kind of doing shorter books. I've got some longer ones I've been thinking about tackling, but I just have a hard time staying in one place for long periods of time. I don't. I've got severe ADD, so I have a tough time with that. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But anyway. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 tonight, and a lot of good stuff in this passage. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. It says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed, and that they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit, these things teach and exhort. So first thing we notice here, it mentions, once again, we've been talking a lot about behavior in the book of Timothy. There's good doctrine that's taught in here too, but a great deal of what we see is about our behavior. And we've emphasized that, I think, tried to mention that in every chapter. And so right here, it's given instructions for believers that on how we should act when it comes to our master's or our employers. And notice what it says in there too. You know, it's talking about, you know, if you're under the yoke, you know, you give them honor. And it says the reason for that, one of the reasons you want to be a good employee is the word we use today, is because we don't want the name of God and his doctrine being blasphemed. Say so how is our lack of you know how is us being a bad employee blaspheming God? Well it's not us blaspheming God But since we represent Him, since we're the ones who represent Christ, if we're out there making a bad impression, guess what? People are going to think badly about Jesus Christ. They're going to think badly about the one we represent. We're ambassadors. okay? If you're an ambassador for our country and you go to another country to do the work of the President, they expect certain behavior from you. They expect certain things. And if, because if, and if you, if you go over there and you conduct yourself in a very bad way, it makes the whole country look bad. And seeing that many of the, uh, of our employers are not believers, they do not know God, the way that they are to get to know God is through us. Well, if we're crooked, if we're dishonest, if we're lazy, you know, if we're just, I mean, terrible to work with, how does that represent Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ wasn't that way. We know Jesus was a carpenter. We know He was probably a hard worker. We know Jesus was honest. He had all these good attributes. So we ought to have these things too because if we don't, people will look down on Christ. And sadly, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, on, it's not fair. But, you know, sometimes I get why the world hates Christianity so much because of all these people out there who are claiming to represent Christianity. You know, and, and, and you and I know they're not Christians. You and I know that the Robert Tiltons and these TV preachers, we know those are not believers. Okay, but understand, they portray themselves as one. You know, they put themselves forth as one, and the world sees that foolishness. They can see right through it, and it causes them to blaspheme God. Well, you know, unfortunately, there are going to be the false prophets who claim to be Christians. There's not really anything we can do about that. But you know what? There is something we can do about actual believers. There is something we can do about us. Well, I can't stop everyone who calls themselves a Christian from being a pile of garbage. You know, I, I don't have to be a pile of garbage. 
I can have a good testimony. And when it comes to our employers, this is important. Think about it. I mean, who do we spend more time with than our coworkers? We spend more, I mean, besides our families, you spend more time with your coworkers than you do other Christians, people here in church. We spend a lot of time with them. And we and so we need to take this serious. That's a huge part of our ministry and what we do. So we got to keep these things in mind. You know, when everybody else is being lazy, when everybody else is being worthless, sometimes you just got to stop and say, you know what? Well, I'd like to do that too. I can't. I'm a Christian. And you know what? The Lord has. It seems like the Lord has always put people. In all the years I've worked at Walmart out here, and when I worked at Walmart in Spring Valley, there were always people that I worked with that they were not believers, but they had a great deal of character and just a great work ethic that always worked hard, always did the right thing. And, you know, whenever, and it was always easy for me to just sometimes feel like, you know what, I'm just going to be lazy today. You know, everybody else is being lazy. Everybody else is being worthless. But, you know, what? there was always that one guy who wasn't even a Christian that was doing the right thing. And it was always a reminder to me, you know what? You know, I'm the one who should be the one guy doing the right thing. So guess what? You don't get to be lazy. And it would have been easy for me to just be a little bit better than everybody else. But I've always had those that one coworker that's like the Lord puts there to just make sure I stay in line. And I do. There when I worked out in Spring Valley, it was a guy named Mike. That you know, anytime I ever felt like being lazy, I couldn't do it. Because that guy was always working hard no matter what. Same thing I'm at now. It's a guy named Ed. That, you know, no matter what, the guy's always working hard. He's always got a good attitude. You know, everybody loves working with the guy. I mean, anytime I feel like, you know what, I don't need to make such great effort, I got him there. You know, and I'm not going to, I don't want to be put to shame by someone who doesn't even claim to be a Christian. That would be, uh, that would be bad. So, we need to make sure we do. And the Bible talks about this a lot. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to turn over there, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5, it says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. I'm going to tell you right now, when it comes to the work that I do a lot, and that I have always done over the years, I'm not trying to sound spiritual right now, but I'm going to tell you, one of the main reasons I have worked hard and I've made the efforts that I have made is because of this, these passages right here. I'm doing it as to the Lord. And it honestly, when you are working amongst the world. It's not hard to be impressive as a worker. It's not. And I, I've, I've never felt like I need to impress my boss or that I am in competition with my other co- co-workers, with, with my boss. I've never felt like that with any job I've had. But you know where I have felt that way with? With God. I don't want God seeing lost people Outdo me. And I'm going to tell you, that that's one of my big motivations. When I'm out there working, you know, most of the time my boss, my boss isn't around. He's not seeing 
what I'm doing. He's not seeing what's going on. But when I'm around some of these other guys that are doing the right thing, working hard, I know, man, the Lord sees this. I can't be worthless in His sight, especially when I'm... You know, it, it'd be easy for me to, even with the Lord, to as long as I'm just being better than everybody else. But I'm telling you right now, it's you know those people they make it difficult, and I, when I'm, I'm when I'm competing with them, it's not for my boss, not for my earthly boss, it's for the Lord, and that's how we're supposed to work. Look what it says in uh, Colossians three twenty two: Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Okay? I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not scared of my bosses. I, I've, I've not been scared of a boss since I was... 18 is when I quit being scared of bosses. And I'll tell you why. Because you know, when you're young and inexperienced, you know you just picture them going all Donald Trump on you and just firing you right there and throwing you out in the street. But then as you start working, you start learning about workers' rights. And we have so many rights as workers, you can be pretty pathetic and still keep your job in most places. And it's wrong, it shouldn't be that way, but the thing is, you know, I've been around long enough now, I know the system, I know what they can do and what they can't do. When I finally learned, I was 18 years old, and I had some bosses that came to me, when I got hired on that job, I told them, I cannot work Sundays. Is that a problem? Nope, not a problem. Nope, we understand. I, I just want to make sure because I said, I, I absolutely cannot work Sundays. Well, the problem is, the one who hired me, shortly after I started, got fired. Well, then the next boss came along, and he was just like, no, you have to work Sundays. And I'm like, listen, when I got this job, I was under the agreement, I did not have to work Sundays. We're like, it doesn't matter, you have to work Sundays. And I said, well, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, well, then we'll have to fire you. And I was like, well, then you're going to have to fire me. And he's like, okay, you're fired. And I was like, okay, do you want me to quit? Do you want me to leave now or at the end of my shift? And he just is like, wait at the end of your shift. <laughs> and then later, his boss ended up coming, and he just came and told me, he's like, you're not fired. <laughs> and I, and I, that's kind of when I started learning, you know. Workers have some rights. They can't just do whatever they want. And... Um, you know, it, and so I'm, I'm not scared of them, but I am. I do fear the Lord. I do fear God. He could take that job. He could take that job away from me. I could get in trouble with Him, and so, and I, I feel like I'm working for Him. I'm working for Him, and I see all my jo- other job that I have. I see it as part of my ministry here. This is my main thing. I keep this the priority pastoring this church. And the Lord knows I have to you know, have the outside income. Well, if I'm doing a sorry job out there, the Lord's going to know, you know what, I'm probably not going to do that good here. If I'm wasting my time out there, I'll probably waste the time I have here if I get it. So I feel like you know, I've got to be working hard there too if I want the Lord to bless me to where I'm doing all my work over here. And I'm, tell- I'm telling you, 95% of the time, my performance and my job is to please the Lord. Sometimes I'm just trying to please the boss over there. You know, There are those times. But for the most part, 
It is, it is to please the Lord. And that's the way it should be. And so, you know, remember, your boss isn't always watching. But the Lord is always watching. So, let's keep reading in 1 Timothy. Or first, I uh, almost, almost passed it up. So, in verse 2, you know, And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. You know what? If you have a saved employer, don't take advantage of him. Alright? Understand that, hey, he's a brother. He's, he's a fellow laborer with you in the things of God. Don't take advantage of that man. I, I used, with another job I used to have when I was doing sales and doing estimates, we went to this uh, training thing and the guy who was there, he, he was a Baptist who owned this company and he was doing this training thing, uh, uh, thing for the sales and everything and he was telling me about when he started his business you know, he was in, he's in a, was in an independent fundamental Baptist church. Uh, I know the church that he's from. And he'd started this business and he was hiring a bunch of people in the church. And pretty much everybody that was working in this business as it's getting started are all Baptists. They're all people that go to his church. Even the pastor was doing work with them. Uh, in those early days of his church, even the pastor was working with them. But all of a sudden, it created a problem because the business started growing, it started expanding, and then the pastor, he was able to kind of back off and wasn't really doing much work for him anymore, and the church started doing more things, the church started doing more activities. Well, guess what? Now, everybody thinks when the church has this going on, we don't have to work. I mean, the business was almost like a part of the church, and it it ended up hurting them. Everybody was taking advantage of him. They just all felt like, since he went to the church too, anything that was going on in the church, they all could just, you know, they didn't have to work that day. And he was like, hey guys, you know, we've got, <laughs> we've got commitments we need to fill. We've got things we need to do. And if you, you know, and you know how pastors are. A lot of times we just decide to do something spur of the moment. You know, employers, a lot of times they have to plan things way ahead of time. And he just kept getting sabotaged. And so finally he didn't want to hire people in the church anymore. Because it's like the otherwise next big church thing comes up, all my employees are going to be gone, and I'm in big trouble. And it was it was a real burden for him. You know what? We shouldn't do that. You don't take advantage of your boss just because he's a Christian. That's not, that's not a good thing. So look at verse three. It says, "If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness." He is proud and knoweth nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, in verses 3-10, through 10, there's many great statements that we can learn from. And there's many statements right here. And we see this a lot in the Bible 
you know, when you're, especially when you're reading through Paul's epistles, a lot of times you'll hear a message preached just on one verse, and that's fine, a topical message. You'll hear, um, you know, or even sometimes just one statement. You'll hear a whole message preached just about one statement that's, that's mentioned. And that's fine. Uh, there, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but it's important sometimes to, uh, and this is why I think uh, expository preaching is important, a lot of times we just kind of look at things as several different subjects, but there's a reason all these things are there together. And when we look at everything together, it can give us a clearer understanding of some of those specific things that are mentioned. This is why context is so important. And lack of context is what destroy, is destroying a lot of the doctrine that's being taught in churches today. And even many things in this chapter that we're going to see here in a little bit. But we, but let's, let's get the mess, let's make sure we get this full message of verse 1 through 10. Okay? Because notice what it started out with. It started out with talking about how we treat our employers, right? Talking about how we treat our employers. Make sure you're serving them as the Lord, not to men. Don't take advantage of a brother in Christ. You know, don't despise him just because, you know, he's a brother. You treat him right too. And notice, Ultimately, what this is all about, and it gets down to verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay? And what basically, I think the full gist of what we see here in the first 10 verses is as Christians, we're not supposed to be about gain. Okay? It says in there, godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what we are supposed to be about? We're supposed to be about godliness. And that's why it's bringing these things up. Because why is it that most people, you know, why, why do they do the jobs that they do? Okay? Obviously, we do these things to make a living, right? That's important. You've got to make a living. Okay? But at the same time, as believers, a major priority for us ought to be godliness. We ought to be godly people. And you know what that will do? That will cause us to not work certain jobs. Well, you know, I can make more money if I worked at the casino. But is that, is that, is that someplace a Christian ought to work? Is that going to help our godliness out? working in some place like that. We need to take these things into consideration when it comes to what we do. Hey, is that job going to take me out of church? Well, yeah, but the thing is, you're going to make a lot more money. But wait a minute. I thought godliness with contentment was great gain. The Bible says that we brought nothing into this world. We can carry nothing out. Having fruit and raiment therewith, let us be content. Why don't we prioritize when it comes to our jobs? Why don't we take into consideration, hey, what job will help me be a better Christian? What job will put me in a good church? There's a lot of people that are living places, they work good jobs, they make good money, and there's some place where there's no good church. You know what? If that's the case, you'd be better off moving somewhere where you make less money so you could be in a good church. A place that will help you be more godly. A place that will, uh, that will encourage you to win souls. You know, in a lot of churches today, you're not going to be challenged to be godly. You're not going to be challenged to be a soul winner. You're not going to be challenged to make that extra step and make that extra effort. That's not going to happen in a lot of churches. And many people today are souring in sorry churches. You know why? Because I make a little more money there. I'm able to drive nicer cars. I'm able to have a better house. But that's not what we're about. We are about godliness. And so all and, and that when we keep that as a priority... It fixes all these other things. We're not going to take advantage of our employer. You know why? Because we're about godliness. 
We're not going to take it whether he's a believer or a non-believer. We're not going to do that. We're not going to be lazy if we're about godliness. We're not going to take shortcuts. We're not going to rip people off. We're not going to be dishonest in our dealings. We're going to be honest even if it means we might not make as much money. You know why? Because godliness with contentment is great gain. It, that's better. That's the type of thing that we ought to, that we ought to do. And it says in verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. And the things that's specifically talking about here is how we are with our employers. It's how we, it's about being godly and not allowing the desire for money, the love of money, the desire for gain to cause us to get away from those things. But that that happens. You know that love of money. You know they that will be rich fall into temp, you know a snare and temptation and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That desire for gain it does so much damage to people. It gets them in so much trouble and it takes them away from godliness. You know what the problem is in a lot of Baptist churches today? They people think as long as we look good. As long as I look the part, I'm good. But you know, who cares how nice you look? Who cares how good you dress if you're ripping people off? You know, if you're a salesman and you're taking advantage of little old ladies, you know, you're using scare tactics on people, you know, overcharging people for things, you know, who cares how good you look? Who cares how much money you're even giving to the church? If that money that you're giving to the church, you got from ripping off people. You think God cares about that? You think God's going to look and say, well, you know, we're going to let this one slide because that was a big tithe check. God doesn't care about that. What He does care is about godliness. And that love of money, it takes us away from these things. It affects our behavior in a negative way and we can never let that happen. We cannot sell out. We cannot sell out our godliness for gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know what? I don't believe that God's going to allow a crook or someone who's not godly to have the contentment. And I think proof of that is just all the just dishonest and unhappy, miserable, rich people that there are out there. They can't seem to get enough. These people are never content. You know why they're not content? It's not because they don't have enough money. They've got plenty of money. It's because they're not godly. They're not godly and God has not given them the contentment. And remember, I think it's in the book of Psalms. It's talking about the children of Israel. How you know God gave them, He gave them a lot of these things they needed, but then He sent leanness to their soul. You know, that desire, you know, He didn't let He did not let He didn't let what He had given them satisfy them. And if we would just concentrate on being godly, you know what I believe God would do is God would actually allow us to find contentment and fulfillment and happiness with what we do have. You might think, well, I can't be happy unless I've got that, you know, fancy car or whatever. Well, I'm sorry. That won't make you happy. You tell yourself that all you want. It's not going to work. You're not going to find real contentment unless it comes from Christ. So, we're not about gain. We're about godliness. You know, we treat our masters good because it's the right thing to do, not because it's profitable. We don't do a good job just so we're more likely to get the raise. We treat them right 
because it's the right thing to do. If you just treat your masters good, hoping you're going to get more from it, well, you know what? What are you going to do after you, when you get overlooked? What are you going to do when you get treated unfair? Then you're just going to go and you're going to do evil. You're going to do, go against what God said. And we need to be teaching these things. We need to be teaching these wholesome words, this good doctrine. We will be better off being poor and honest than rich and crooked. And that's what, and that, you know, that's what I want to stay away from these prosperity preachers. I ran about them the other day too. These, these prosperity preachers that act like if you're, God, if you're godly, you will be rich. You know, if you have things, that, that proves you're godly. You know, the Bible says in, oh, where's, in verse 5, it's saying perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. The Bible says stay away from those people. Stay away from these people who look at material gain as like that proves you're just this great Christian. And I know some of these preachers, I could probably start naming some names right now. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't. I won't name names. I don't want to assume I could read their mind. But you know what? When you have a wreck, I, 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 I'm not going to say his name because I, I'm not, I might not get the details right on this one guy. My wife will know who I'm talking about. You know, he wrecks his really nice car. You know, and he's got to make a mention how you know the Lord protected him in his wreck, and you know he his hair was still perfect. You know his his you know nice clothes he was wearing. I don't remember the details. You know, and his Mont Blanc pen or whatever. I guess that's a name, big name pen. It didn't even fall out of his pocket or anything. You know, and just you know the Lord. You know, he, this guy's always talking about all his stuff and all these things he had, and he he like did this big thing about how the Lord just protected him and his pen didn't even get hurt. You know, and then people started kind of criticizing him for all he had. And he's like, well, you know, the car was used. And they started finding all these holes in this thing. And then, you know, one thing he forgot to mention, too, while the Lord protected his pen and his hairdo, his wife broke her collarbone in the wreck. He never mentioned that at first. And I was just like, and, and the thing is, you know, I, you know th- this guy is like that. He's a Phil kid. All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I. I I remember I watched that first video that he put out, and it was so clear. He started thinking, what kind of car was that he, he wrecked? I can't remember what kind of car it was. It was a Jaguar, I think. I think it was a Jaguar. And, you know, he's on there, he's like thanking the makers of Jaguar for making such a safe vehicle, you know, that protected me in my car. But it didn't protect his wife. <laughs> but it protected him as the driver. Was that? I can't hear you. But anyway... You know, so, you know, he said, and it was so clear, I'm watching, I'm like, he's hoping they're going to give him another car. You know, if, just because he did this promo for him. But unfortunately, you know, he doesn't realize he's not big enough that that's going to get enough advertisement for him that they're going to give him a new car. It was, it was one of the most pathetic things ever. And a, after people started getting on him for almost being like too rich and having too much stuff, then he started trying to play the pauper card. You know, it was used. Uh, you know, yeah, well, you know. I need somebody to feel sorry for me. Oh, by the way, my wife broke her collarbone. Forgot to mention that. Uh, but it just, you know, people like that, we ought to stay away from those people. These preachers, too, they, they, they do, they come walking in, you know, they, they, they visit these churches. And I've been there a million times. You know, it was like this, you know, even, even in our last, and this is not a slam on my dad's church, but, you know, I remember whenever they built the new auditorium, whenever they built the new gymnasium, you know, you'd have all the guest preachers come in there and they walk around, they look at the facility, wow, 
Lord's sure blessing here. The Lord's sure blessing. Wow, the Lord's doing a great work. Why? Because we have nice stuff. That's that's what me. You know, that's the great work. When the Lord said, "I will build my church," He was talking about buildings. You know, thank God that the Lord blessed us, did bless us there, and made nice buildings. But you know what? The thing is, the thing we're not supposed to look at those things. Oh, look at those beautiful chandeliers. All oh, at this. Look at that. No, we ought to be talking about the actual souls being saved, lives being changed, people living godliness. That's what shows the Lord is doing a great work. It's not buildings. But you know what? You can't convince some of these guys that you're doing a great work unless you have a palatial building. You know why? Because these people think gain is godliness. Bible says withdraw from those people. If you're not, you know, and a lot of preachers, one of the reasons they go into such deep debt is because they're trying to impress all the brethren. Well, I've got to give off the impression that I'm godly. I've got to give off the impression that the Lord's doing a great work here. So what do they do? You know, they go get a big fat loan so they can get all that fancy looking stuff. So everybody will admire them, and then these poor pastors get stressed out of their mind. You know, they're having ulcers and nervous breakdowns and things. Where you know what? If they would have just been content with what they had and just focused on winning souls and being godly, you know what? Maybe the Lord would have given them those things anyway, but they would have gotten it honestly. And they wouldn't have got it along with the ulcers and the nervous breakdowns and the church splits. That always happens. With those things, we've got to stay away from these people. You know, I thank God for the pastor friends I have. You, you don't hear you don't hear them talk about those things. You know what they talk about when they talk about Lord doing work? They talk about souls getting saved. That's it. You know, they talk they talk about those things, the things that really matter, the things that the Bible mentions. You don't hear them talking about the buildings, things like that. But that is that's what the old IP is all about: building an empire, building an organization. Uh, impressive looking places. That is not what this is about. And, the, and it says in there too, it says while well, some covet after they have erred from the faith. Why did they err from the faith? You know why they started trimming the message. They started compromising so they don't lose the tithe. How are we going to make this mortgage payment? You know, if I run off Mr. Moneybags, we're in big trouble. And what do they do? They erred from the faith and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, now God's not blessing. God's not giving them messages anymore. Now every week they got to preach about money because they're just worried about you know getting enough in the offering to just stay afloat for another week. And you know, if they'd have just if they'd have just been content, if they'd have just been content, they wouldn't have made those financial mistakes. But they did. They went into debt to give off the appearance that their church is being blessed because they're running with a bunch of loser pastors. To suppose that gain is godliness. When the Bible says withdraw from them, we ought to stay away from those people. Look at verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. You know, these things that the Bible said, the things that God said to run from, these things actually end up costing us, don't they? They're expensive. But the things that He says to go after... They don't cost anything, do they? Now, they might in the sense that if I live godly, it might compromise my ability to make gain. But didn't we see that godliness with contentment is great gain? 
Didn't we see that we're not supposed to be going after the money? That that's not what we're about. That that's not how we measure our success. The, the things that we are going after, those things, they don't cost anything. And in other words, I don't have to write a check for those things. It might slow down my ability to accumulate stuff, but that's not what we're about. That's not what God has called us to do. So you know what? I shouldn't even, I shouldn't even take that into consideration. Verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee in charge, give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this fight, this fight, this good fight we're supposed to be fighting, this fight for godliness, this fight for not getting caught up in the love of money, not getting caught up in going after gain, not being a bad testimony where we work. We need, the Bible says we need to be without spot. This is not something that we need to be backsliding on. This is not something we can take a break on. You know, let me just go try getting some gain for a while. Let me get all my debt paid off. Let me get a little nest egg. And then I'll go after godliness. No. We need to be without spot. Unrebukable. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? This is just a side note. Proof again that the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ is the rapture, and it's not that it, it's not Armageddon. How are we supposed to stay without spot under the appearing if we're you know we're not going to you know we're already going to be gone before the appearing comes? Oh, well, you need to understand the difference between appearing and glorious appearing. So the first one's not going to be glorious. Right. just a side note there. I just thought I'd throw that in there just for bonus. Just uh, once again, more bad doctrine out there. But we do. We need to. We need to strive to be without spot in our doctrine, and that's why I just mentioned that. That's a big spot in a lot of churches today. Uh, is their end times doctrine? Look at verse fourteen. Now get this. All right, this next passage that we're going to be getting into here in a minute, it's one that is being contested right now by a bunch of flaming heretics that call themselves Baptists once again, because like the dispensationalists, they never look at context. They never look at context. Ever. And that's why they get in trouble. Look at verse 14. Okay, so keeping all these things in mind, there's been a theme throughout this whole chapter. And it says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, unto the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So notice, we've been talking about you know, what we're all about. We are about godliness. We want good doctrine, but understand we've been seeing throughout the book of Timothy that a lot of the good doctrine that we're supposed to be teaching is about our behavior and how we act. It's not just about what we know. Okay, It's about what we do. It's about how we act. It's about how we conduct ourselves. It's about our behavior in many cases. And you know what? Just because you have good doctrine, that doesn't give you an excuse to have bad behavior. 
And just because you have good behavior doesn't give you an excuse for bad doctrine. A lot of people have horrible doctrine, but they think because they're just so nice and because they have good behavior that that justifies it. No, we're supposed to have both. Alright, good doctrine with good behavior. And so right here in verse 14, he's, or in verse, he's telling them to keep the commandment without spot until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and it mentions some things about Jesus Christ. And notice what it kind of highlights about Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the man who conquered all things so we wouldn't have to go to hell. Now, let's, now keep this in mind. Look at verse um, at verse 15. So, because there's some things we need to understand about this passage to keep from getting sucked into this new end times heresy that's, that's going on. So it says, you know, which in his time, he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look what it says here. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Okay, So Jesus Christ, that work of salvation, that was done by Jesus Christ. Y'all get that? Now, why did Jesus Christ have to come to earth as a man to do that work? Why did, Jesus, why did God have to become a man in order to bring salvation to the world? Well, turn over to Romans chapter 5. While you're turning over to Romans 5, I want to read a passage to you in John chapter 4. There's a very good reason He had to become a man. Jesus saith unto her, and this is John 4.21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Notice what it says about God there. It says He's a spirit. Right? God is a spirit. Right? God the Father, He is a spirit. Jesus Christ, while He was God, He was a man too, wasn't He? Jesus Christ, He came to earth as a flesh and blood man, just like you and me. But the difference was He was born of God. He was the Son of God. Therefore, He did not have the sin nature. And it was necessary for Him to be a man to pay for our sins. Like, we'll look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, 
Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Okay? The reason God had to become a man is because it was man that brought sin into the world. It was man that brought death into the world. Therefore, it had to be a man to get death out of the world. Just like because a man brought death into the world, it had to be a man to bring eternal life to the world. That is why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us because a man had to get rid of sin. And that is why Jesus is that mediator between God and man. Jesus did the work of salvation for us. God the Father did not die for our sins. He is a spirit. Jesus Christ did. Why? Because He is a man. It had to be a man. In John 1, it proves that Jesus is God and was God before He came to this earth. And what people are doing with this passage today, they're going here and they're saying that, you know, when it's talking about when it says, you know, who no man has seen nor can see, they're you know saying that you know nobody's seen Jesus, and they're just they're getting all weird and confused. I don't even know what they're even trying to talk about with this passage. It makes no sense. But look at, they're even going as far to make, you know, all these passages fit their crazy doctrine. They're even teaching now that against the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. Tyler Baker taught that Jesus did not become the Son until He was conceived in the womb. Now, first of all, that is just foolish beyond words. And you know, one verse that just absolutely debunks that is John 3.16. John 3.16 debunks that. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world. How can you send your Son into the world if you don't have a Son yet? If He didn't have a Son, because if He didn't become the Son until He was conceived in the womb, then that means the Son was never in heaven for God to send to the world. Or when God was up there in heaven and He's Himself, and then He He comes down. You know, if he wasn't a son until he was in the womb of Mary, then God did not have to send his son from heaven. In fact, God didn't have a son then. And God couldn't have a son until he came into the world. So how does God send his son into the world when he doesn't have a son in heaven? Can anybody figure that one out? That doesn't make any sense. You know, John three sixteen and seventeen, it disproves that. God sent his son into the world, meaning he was already there. And John 1 shows that in the beginning, you know, he, the Word was with God, showing that Jesus was already there. What was different when He came to this earth? Well, the, world, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus was already the Son of God. And the oneness crowd, they, they love to twist the, this passage where in, here in chapter, uh, chapter 6, it's clearly talking about titles that are given to Jesus because of the fact that He is the One conquering all things for us. Because Jesus is the person of the Godhead who became a physical man. And to say that, and so what they do is they say, well, you guys obviously believe in multiple gods and multiple King of Kings. And it's funny, the only way they can get any heresy out of us is by you know, taking what we say and adding a meaning to it that 
Nobody believes that none of us have ever said. They always have to take our words and then add their words to it. Every time. There's this one clown, Russell Bops, that got thrown out of his church. He does that with everything. He's always asking me these questions. And then I answer the question, well, since you're saying that, what you really believe, and then he'll just throw out some crazy heresy. He's like, you, my friend, are a moron. All right? you know, and I know it's got to feel bad you know, getting thrown out of a church, being humiliated, and then now he's just yoked up with a bunch of clowns that keep making themselves look like retards. And he's got to try to defend these guys because he, you know, in order to save face, he had to move his family across the country to try to go help the guy that he backed up be successful. And uh, this guy's doing everything he can to sabotage it by being just an idiot. And this guy's trying to defend him. It's a, it's a it's a sad thing. If I was him, I would just I'd just go jump in a lake and try to hope everybody forgets me. But no, that, that's not that's not what he's doing. But look at this. Let's read this again. So what the, this is what they do at the passage. So say which in his time, right after mention Jesus Christ, you know, shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality. Only Jesus has immortality. But you know, the Bible says that you know the Father has immortality. So they can't be two. But wait, it's this talking about the only man who has immortality. Everybody knows God has immortality. But Jesus Christ is the only man who has immortality. Because guess what all men have in common is that we are mortal. Why are we mortal? Because we're sinful. And therefore, death, it comes to the world because of sin. And because Jesus Christ conquered that sin, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended the Father, He has immortality as a man. Has immortality. It's not saying that, you know, now God the Father can't have immortality. This is talking about Jesus as a man and what He did for us. And Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Oh, so you're saying that, you know, Jesus outranks the Father? Well, you know what? I'm glad you said that to me. Let me show you something. Uh, look at what it says in... Lost my spot. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. See, because you know, how do we make sense of the one in the Trinity with this passage? Is well, let, before before we go to Ephesians, let me go to John ten thirty. And I made a video about this the other day, and nobody has even tried to refute what I said. Alright? This trendy dude from Australia. All he did was, well, you didn't answer these 45 other questions I had that I don't even have an answer to. Hey, how about you show me where I'm wrong on this crystal clear Scripture and then maybe we can talk about your 45 other questions that you don't even have an answer to. But you know, this is, their fa- this is the, the oneness people's favorite verse. John 10.30 I and my Father are one. Oh, nice and easy. Hardly any words. Short verse. There's all our doctrine. But here's the thing. Here's what you have to ask these people. How are God, the Father, and the Son one? Well, they will tell you it's because they're the same person. Okay, can you show me a verse that shows that? That that's what, that that's what he's talking about? That that's how they are one? Because they're actually the same person? Because I John chapter 17 tells us something completely different. Look at John chapter 17 and verse 10. It says, All mine are thine, 
and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Are we going to lose our identity when we get to heaven and all just be one person in one body? No, I, I think we're all going to be there as individuals, aren't we? But we're all going to be one in, all the, in, in the sense we're all going to be united. We're all going to be a part of the same group. We're all going to be perfect. We're all going to be like Christ. But we're still going to be individuals. And it says there, Jesus said that they may be one as we are one. Nobody wants to bring up that verse. Nobody has even tried to tell me where I'm wrong in that verse. Yes, I believe that Jesus and the Father are one, but here's how they are one, and here's a verse to prove it. Here's a verse that says it. Here's a verse that explains it. Jesus says it again in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word, that they all may be one as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in Us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me, and the glory which Thou gavest Me I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and Thou in Me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that Thou hast sent Me, and hast loved them as Thou hast loved Me. I'm not one to go around dropping a microphone, but you know that, that's a mic drop right there, folks. That ends it. I'm only repeating this because we're going through First Timothy chapter six and it's here. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like there is there is nothing more to be said on that. Oneness is garbage. Oneness is stupid. Oneness is false. The Trinity is the truth. And let's go to Ephesians chapter one. All right, Ephesians chapter one and verse nineteen. So, what about this King of Kings? Do you think there's two King of Kings? And this is what they do too. They, they won't even address John 17 and compare it with John 10. They won't even address that. They won't even attempt to show me where I'm wrong. And what do they do? They just want to ask stupid questions. And because we believe Jesus is the King of Kings, well, then you must believe in two King of Kings. And they just ask these dumb questions that it's like, really, i got to explain this to you? I mean, it's like you have to go back to kindergarten. With these people. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. What is this teaching right here? This is teaching that the Father gave all authority to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, once again, how are the Father and Son one? I gave the comparison. If the Bible says that a husband and wife, these two are one flesh. Okay? A husband and a wife, while they are two, they are one flesh. I am not the wife. My wife is not the husband. Okay, But we are one flesh. And I believe there is a comparison there, especially when Jesus made the statement, I and my Father are one, 
if they would look at context there, they would see that the way the Father and the Son are one in that particular instance where he mentioned it is the same way where my mom and dad were one. Say, how, how are your mom and dad one? You know, one of the things that we used to do regularly as kids that would often get us in trouble is often, you know, we would ask our mom, hey, can we do something? And our mom would say no. And so what we would do, well, as kids, we knew that the husband's in authority over the wife. So we would go to dad and we would say, dad, can we do this? And now, unfortunately, you know, dads aren't perfect. They're not all knowing. They don't know everything that mom knows and all that. So it's not as good. It doesn't always work as good as it does with the father and the son. But often, when I would go to dad and I would say, hey, dad, can I do this? You know what he would say? What did your mom say? Well, I'm wondering, I want to know what you say. What did your mom say? Well, you know, she said this, but you know, you're, you're dead. Whatever she says, that's what I say. You know what he's saying? Hey, we're united on this. We're one. You know what he was saying? Hey, yes, while he's the boss, while he was the authority, he gave mom the authority to make the judgment in that situation. And so understand, whenever I would, my mom would give an order, while she was maybe in a certain situation, the one, you know, giving out an order, the father was the father was involved too, wasn't he? Because he gave that authority to her. There are many things in our house where I have given my wife that authority. Yeah, I'm the boss of my house. All right, I'll 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 say it right now. All right, she knows it. But you know what? There's many things I've given over to her. And you know, my kids they don't come to me and say, Dad, what are we eating for supper? Hey, I've committed that to her. She's the authority uh, in that. I have given her that authority. And so, and, and as, as a husband and wife, or as a mother and father, it's important that you don't let your kids get away with trying to play parents against each other. You're supposed to be united because it's supposed to be one flesh. We don't always get it right, but the father and son do. When Jesus is saying, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the father... When he was saying that, it's because people are like, we don't like what you're saying. We want to hear from the Father. Hey, you don't need to hear from the Father. He's going to tell you the same thing I'm telling you. In fact, I'm saying what He told me to tell you. I and my Father are one. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Context is so important, people. Context. I'm just going to get a tattoo on my forehead. Alright? Ah, that'd be, that'd, be, that'd be going against the Scripture. But context. It makes it everything... Clear, and these people—they're just once again, you know. And, and the problem, you know, I'm just going to—I'm I'm, going to make a judgment here. All right, I don't have the facts in this. I'm just making a judgment. All right, make an observation. Here's what I think happened. Here's why I think this oneness thing got started. I think it happened because Tyler Baker is a punk. He's a know-it-all punk, and he thought he learned something. He thought he discovered something that nobody else knew. That nobody else was preaching. And he was right. Nobody else was in the Baptist world. Alright? There was a lot of it in the Pentecostal world. And he decided he was going to be the one that was just going to break this new doctrine out there and get it out to everybody. But unfortunately, he had ran his mouth too much. He ended up getting busted. And you know what? He was invested at that point. And you know what? He has been made to look like a fool. 
Because he is. That teaching is foolish. And the only people that are siding with him are people who have gotten their backsides kicked by Pastor Anderson in the past, and they just want to see him. They just want to see him defeated. And Tyler Baker is just kind of leading the charge against them right now. And these people who are following him in this are morons. All right, every so-called pastor that is teaching this oneness junk are morons, and some of them phony pastors. Whether it be Kenneth McCrane, whether it be full-blown heretics like Andrew Sluter, another one doing it, whether it be little trendy Victor Tay, right? whether it be you know compromise, I can't get nobody into my church unless I'm going to be the trash can of faithful word Baptist church, Pastor Tim Coleman, whether it be people like that's it. Those are the only people that are that are teaching this junk. Because they're they're just they're idiots. They're, they've been defeated and they just want to see they want to see their enemy go down, but it's not going to happen with this doctrine. They picked the wrong place to have the fight because unfortunately, Pastor Anderson is right on the money and they are way off into full blown heresy. And you know, I don't like to get involved in these things, but I'm sorry, this is important, and I've seen just too many old IFB pastors who are just morons who don't but they're good people. You know, I don't want to say morons, but good people. They're well meaning, but they're just dumb. Alright? They're just dumb. And they're listening to these people misrepresent, you know, the true position of the Trinity. And some of them are falling for that. But most some the ones that I've talked to, whenever they find out what's actually being taught on our side, they're like, that's what I believe. That's what that's what everybody believes, but these you know. But unfortunately, some people are listening to these people because they don't realize just they don't know who these people are. But in the old IFB, they just kind of have a default position that if Pastor Anderson preaches it, we're against it because they don't like where he's at on end times. But I'm sorry, you know he he's right on the money here, along with pretty much everybody else in the Baptist world except for the losers that I named, the full blown losers. But anyway, i got to finish this up. Verse 17. I could talk a lot more about this, but I think I've said plenty. But in the Trinity, we see a constant working together. A constant unity. Okay? And that's, you know, and the unity to the point that it's easy for us to see the work that's being done and get confused about which one's doing the work. You know why? Because they're always working together. In, in, in pretty much everything, you see the Father, Son, and the Spirit working together. Okay? But there are very specific areas where certain one works. Jesus did the work on the cross. The Holy Spirit does the work in our heart. There are, there, there are very specific areas where they work, but they're all working together. They're always working together. And so it is, it's easy to get mixed up. And it's easy to find places, too, where you see all three credited because they all three were involved. Hey, you can give me credit for my kids being in the world. You can give my wife credit, too. We work together on that. All right? It takes two. And in the, when it comes to the things of God, it takes three. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. And these three are one. Just like my wife and I, we are two, but we are one flesh. So verse 17, Charge them that are rich in this world. Back to the theme again. 
charge of the rich in this world, they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good and that they be rich in good works. I talked about this at Bob Carey's funeral. That was a guy, as far as I know, he didn't, he didn't act like he was rich. He didn't live like he was rich. But you know what? Everybody I talked to, you know what they all talked about? They all talked about stuff he did for them. Whether it was giving them boat rides, whether it was mowing their lawn, whether it was teaching somebody English, whether it was you know giving rides. I mean, they're just always talking about the works he did. You know one thing I can say about that man? He brought nothing into this world. He didn't carry anything out of this world. But you know what? There was a whole bunch of people there that are still talking about his works that he did and what those things meant to him. The man clearly was rich in good works. Thank God for that. But um, you know, they do good that they do rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, talking about giving, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and opposition of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. It started out in chapter 1. Warn him about getting caught up in all the wives' fables and things like that. And he ends it with the same thing. We've got to hold on to good doctrine. And don't let the trendies, you know, let you think that, you know, we just need to talk about doctrine and not talk so much about behavior. Good doctrine and good behavior go hand in hand. A lot of good doctrine is about behavior. How can we talk, preach doctrine and not talk about behavior? You can't do it. These things are important. We need to keep these, uh, these things as a part of our life. And you know what? We need to be, we need to strive to be rich in good works. Let's not worry about being rich with possessions. We are not about accumulating things. It's about godliness. We want to be rich in good works. Good works, don't all, they don't, sometimes they don't cost anything. And we can do that. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for all Your blessings. We thank You for Your goodness to us. Lord, I pray You'll help us to be people who are rich in good works. That we will get busy. Uh, we'll do great things for You. I pray you'll, you'll help us to be godly people. Lord, while we study our Bible, help us not study it just so we can find things that make us feel smart, but so we can uh, find out what we can do to be better people. And I pray you'll bless us for it. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and stand. Turn to you. We'll sing one verse of 414. This world is not mine.